A curious thing happens in the book of Exodus when we come to what's clearly the climactic moment of the book. The actual Exodus itself is described in a rather understated, matter-of-fact way in about ten verses. And this monumental event is sandwiched in the text in the book of Exodus between about six passages of lengthy liturgical instruction, passages about regulations concerning worship. So, to understand this, we have to recall that from the beginning, the Exodus event was about worship. It's about what we're doing here tonight. Indeed, it was about public corporate worship. When God first summoned Moses, he told him that the sign that he was sent by God would be, once Moses brought the people out of Egypt, that they would worship God on Mount Sinai. Moses was to tell Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God. So, this, all of this instruction, this worship legislation, ought not to surprise us. In fact, without the liturgy of the Passover, from Exodus 12, which we just read as our first lesson, which is, of course, the traditional first reading for Maundy Thursday for this night, without that ceremony and Israel's adherence to it, deliverance or salvation would not occur. So, in Exodus 12, in verse 2, the Lord tells Moses and Aaron, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So momentous is the Exodus that it, it redefines the Israelite calendar. God is restructuring the way Israel thinks about time because a great break with their previous history is about to occur. And so this new time that the Exodus creates means that Israel becomes a new people. They now become a sovereign nation forged under the hand of the potentate of time. In Exodus 12, in in verse 3, they're called a congregation for the first time. In verse 6, they're called an assembly for the first time. Prior to the Exodus, they'd been a tribe. A wandering and then an enslaved people. But now they're forged into a congregation, an assembly, a publicly identifiable worshiping community. So, it's important to see this about the narrative in Exodus. Worship creates the community. The community exists to worship, and it's sustained by worship. It's the act which establishes the church and sustains her, even as it did for Israel. Or putting it in the language of the Exodus text, the Passover creates the congregation. The Passover creates the assembly. In much the same way, the early fathers in the Christian church used to say that the Eucharist... The Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, 
which the Lord instituted on this night that we're commemorating. The Eucharist, they would say, creates the church. Strange words, perhaps, to some ears, but in fact, they come from the Apostle Paul. Paul says, because we all partake of one loaf, we are one body. Now, we get the reverse of that, which is also true, right? We're one body, therefore we partake of one loaf. That's true. But Paul says, because we partake of the one loaf, we are one body. The Lord's Supper, the new Passover feast, in a sense, creates and sustains the congregation. Later, at the end of this chapter in Exodus, chapter 12, we're told about a little bit more about this congregation. We're told that a sojourner, that is a resident alien, can keep the Passover. If and only if they and their males are circumcised. And this is a beautiful thing because it's a picture of the New Testament reality where Jews and Gentiles, Israelites and sojourners, strangers to Israel, having received baptism, which is the New Testament equivalent to circumcision, are all freely invited to the feast. This is why I will shortly invite all Jew and Gentile, East and West, who've received Christian baptism to the table. And yet the text in Exodus does say this. It says, no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So it's a family meal. It's inclusive, but it's not promiscuous. Uncircumcised foreigners are not to come to the table, just as unbaptized people are not to come to the Lord's meal. So you have here a meal. It's a family meal for the congregation, and you have to have the sign of the covenant on you to be counted as belonging to the congregation. And so the Passover creates that kind of congregation. Jew and Gentile. It anticipates this great ingathering from the ends of the earth. And the text in Exodus continues and tells us that the lamb, which is to be offered, is to be without blemish a male one year old. Now, it's a a treacherous thing to try and take all the details of the Exodus ritual and line them up to something in the New Testament. To be quite frank, a lot of them we don't know what they mean. But there are certain central ones that are pretty clear. The, The sacrificial system in Israel which, remember, is not set up at this time, because Israel's in Egypt. It's about to be set up on the other side of the Red Sea, but the sacrificial system will forbid offering blemished animals. And so when we speak of an unblemished lamb, we're talking about a ceremonially clean animal, an animal that's fit to be eaten. And it refers as well to the purity that God demands in his sacrifice. And thus this unblemished lamb is again, it's a clear picture of Christ. You might remember the Apostle Peter tells us this about Jesus. He's picking up this Exodus language. He says that we were redeemed by his blood, the blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. 
And so when we see this unblemished lamb in Exodus, we think of him whose obedience was complete and entire and perfect and personal and perpetual in his life and supremely so in his death. The utter purity, the incorruptibility of his unblemished obedience. And so, in verse 6, chapter 12, verse 6, it says, The whole assembly of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Notice that the Passover is an act of the whole congregation. Initially, the Passover was celebrated in extended households. But it's really for the whole people of God gathered in public worship, and that's what in fact happens later. In Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people that the Passover shall no longer be celebrated in your private home. It should be celebrated in the place where the Lord puts his name, meaning the tabernacle and later the temple. Right? And that's what we see later. The, ta- the Passover becomes one of the three annual festivals or feasts when all Israelites, all Jews scattered throughout the, the Roman Empire, throughout the known world, would come to the annual feast in Jerusalem at the temple. That's what Jesus was doing in the text we looked at a few days ago on Palm Sunday. All these pilgrims, they flood into Jerusalem from all over the world as our Lord did on the last week of his life to celebrate this festival. And then on this night, on Thursday of that last week, the night he was betrayed, the night we're commemorating, Jesus celebrates this meal with his, with his disciples and he changes it. He transforms it into the Lord's Supper, into the New Testament Passover, and he commits it into the hands of the church, the new Israel. So, the slaughter of the lambs at twilight is a united act of worship by the newly the newly established assembly of Israel. And here again, this is a vivid picture of the Christ who's slain by our hands. Israel slaughtered the lamb. It was our hands that were lifted up against the Lord Jesus Christ because of our guilt, Jew and Gentile. He dies at the Passover feast late in the afternoon near twilight when the Passover lambs were slain. Now you're familiar, I think, with what happens next. But the blood is put on the doorposts and the, and the frame of the houses. And they're told to eat the lamb. They eat the one that was slain, which is what we do there. And they eat the lamb with herbs and unleavened bread. Leaven is a symbol of, of uh, continuity over time. It works slowly. And incrementally. But in the Exodus, we have an act of decisive newness. God is saying, this is the new time. This is the first day of the new month. You're going to have to eat it in haste because you're going to get up and get out of here. So the bread is to be unleavened. And as we come toward the end of our text, we read that the Lord says he will pass through the land of Egypt that night and will strike the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast. He will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. 
What has been going on to this point in the battle between Moses and Pharaoh, which led up to the Exodus, is a battle between kingdoms, between gods, between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and all the so-called gods of Egypt. And that battle comes to an end at the Passover. And the end of our text, well, the end of verse 12 in our text, gives us the point of the whole narrative. The whole plague narrative reduces to this. I am the Lord. In the Passover, God is establishing his godness, if you will, for all to see. That's the reason for the harshness of the judgment on Egyptian civilization. It's a condemnation of their idolatry. So, the blood is to be applied, and the Lord says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, thus Passover, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, notice this. First, the blood is to be a sign for Israel. But it's also a sign for God. God sees it. He says, when I see it, I will pass over you. God sees the sign that's there and renews his covenant with you. But the second thing to note about this is notice Israel is in danger in this this account. They're liable to death. God says, I have to see this Passover blood to pass over them. And since Israel as a whole, corporately, is God's firstborn, right? God said to to, to Pharaoh through Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. Let them go to worship me. Israel is God's firstborn, and this is a night when all the firstborn in the land of Egypt that are not under this blood die. And if God does not see this blood, that means all of Israel would die this night without this blood. And that's why later in the narrative, the Lord says to to, to them, none of you should go outside until the morning. It's a very, um, it's a scene which evokes a great deal of dread and terror and trembling. And we might ask, Why is the whole Passover thing necessary? What what is the deal with all the blood? I mean, God certainly didn't need the blood to distinguish between Israel and Egypt, did he? I mean, he had done just fine in a number of the previous nine plagues. Right? A number of the previous plagues struck only Egypt and not Israel. If it was just a matter of liberation political freedom, then striking Egypt would be enough. Often the Exodus account is read as if it's simply political liberation. It is political liberation. But it's much more than that. It's not simply liberation. This is redemption. Deliverance from the bondage of sin, not just political bondage. And by the way, that's not just a New Testament reading. That's present in a careful reading of Exodus chapter 12. The redemption of God's firstborn son requires a price. 
And here we're reminded that just like Egypt, Israel is sinful. And that her redemption requires an atoning sacrifice. So this brings us to the very heart of our faith. God redeems his firstborn by a lamb. And that points us to the the penalty-bearing substitute given by God himself in his firstborn, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. As, As the Old Testament teaches, and as the book of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Israel itself had placed itself in danger and had become defiled and idolatrous in Egypt. This blood is the price of liberation. And the New Testament tells us we're redeemed by his blood, justified by his blood, purified by his blood, made holy by this blood. The one who says, I am the Lord in this narrative, is a dangerous God. He requires our lifeblood. That's what we forfeited as sinners. And, and right here, we can be blunt about this, I think. This is a great offense. It's a stumbling block to moderns, both inside and outside the church. The idea of, a, of an atonement like this, a substitutionary atonement, a sacrifice which satisfies the wrath of God is offensive, even to many in the church. The idea has been under brutal assault for a century or so. It's said to be pagan. It's said to be barbaric. It's said to be a form of cosmic child abuse. What father would treat his son this way? What kind of a, God, what kind of a bloodthirsty being needs this to forgive people? But God burns this idea into the very bones of Israel. Rivers and rivers of blood, thousands of sacrifices, all designed to get across. There is no forgiveness without the ruthless shedding of blood. It's incomprehensible to, to men and women who don't see themselves as liable before a holy God. But I do want to say something about it that's important to be said. This is not, this is not the, the placating, the pacifying of an angry deity. It is not that. The blood of bulls and goats, the scripture tells us, could never take away sins. God was not confused about that. But they could teach, through this long history of Israel, they could teach us the necessity of blood atonement. God's a very patient teacher. He took a couple thousand years to burn this lesson into the consciousness of Israel. No blood atonement, no salvation. And in the fullness of time, the Lord of the the Passover, in his fatherly goodness and love, sends forth his own son and allows him to be crushed and bruised for our sakes. This is why Christianity is not paganism. Paganism has sacrifices by which they hope to appease the gods. Here, God loves us before the sacrifice is made. 
He does not need the sacrifice to love you. He provides the sacrifice because he loves you. And that is the complete inversion of the pagan notion of we have to make God favorable to us, so let's offer up sacrifices. Here God provides a sacrifice which we could not provide, but beloved, it's more than that. Here God, in the person of his son, is the sacrifice. This is the glory of the atonement. It's the glory of the New Testament Passover. And this is what we celebrate as we worship in this assembly tonight that was created by this event in its New Testament fulfillment. This God rescues us from bondage. He passes over our sins in Jesus Christ. And there, where we will shortly come, that is the final fully sufficient Passover. There we commune, we eat and drink, we partake of the Lamb, the victim, Jesus Christ, the God of Israel made flesh, the unblemished Passover Lamb given for your life and for the life and the redemption of the world. Amen.